Good evening. Your notes are on your table. Thank you, HM, for getting those distributed and getting us all ready for tonight. Uh, I probably didn't say this last week, but I should have. Uh, for those of you who've been in the church for a long time, I may not say a single thing tonight that you haven't already heard. It's actually, the value of this is in its overview and its perspective of the whole. And so I hope as we kind of walk through what the scripture says that you see the value. And I also hope it summarizes it so you can tell your grandkids. You can tell your friends. This is what the scripture says. And it gives you a sense as you're reading a particular scripture. It kind of reminds you, where am I in this story? And why is this scripture saying it this way? So hope it's of a great value to you. Let's pray and we're going to begin session two. Lord Jesus, we know that you called us to disciple, that just as you had so profoundly impacted the lives of your disciples, showing them a new way to live and think, new values, new hopes, that now the church has that burden to do that for others, a joy to say, come, learn a brand new way to think and live. And rooted in the center of that is, the, is this, your scripture. So we thank you tonight for this opportunity i thank you the privilege of telling this story is just larger than i can express lord thank you thank you for allowing me to say it these hearers who want to think deeply on your scripture so we love you we know that this world belongs to you and that you have accurately communicated yourself into the world through the bible so we trust you tonight we look to you in your name Uh, do y'all hear the rock music going? Yeah. Is he trying to get that going? Okay, very good. You're the best. You're, you're absolutely the best. <laughs> if you could look at our planet tonight, everybody, not with the eyes of an astronaut, but rather as a historian or a sociologist, I think what you could see, if you could look the whole planet over, would really amaze you. At this very moment, planet Earth is experiencing a huge revival of religion all across the, the planet. Not just Christianity, uh, not just Christianity, but Muslim piety, Hinduism in India. As early as 2004, let me read you Norris and Englehart. Despite the secularization of the West, the world as a whole has more people with traditional religious views than ever before. You hear me? The world as a whole has more people with traditional religious views than ever before. And they constitute the growing portion of the world's population. What really, if you don't have a secular bias, is going on is all across the world, something that's happened again and again over human history, is that we return back to our origins. We, we return back to our instincts, the, those primal instincts that there is a God, this world is too complicated, beautiful, ordered to have just happened by chance. Again and again over human history, the human race kind of wakes up and moves back to say there is a God and I would really like to know him. Um, Uganda has 20 million Christians, that nation in Africa, and they estimate it'll be 50 million, 50 million by mid-century. 
Brazil has 50 million Catholics, and they estimate it'll be 120 million by the middle of this century, 25 years away. What, what you're seeing, and by the way, the secular press will not tell you this story. They find it, if anything, outside, the, outside the fr their frame. But it is a really remarkable thing going on. Uh, despite the government pressure, there's 100 million Christians in China. 100 million of those folks who are calling Jesus Lord. That's not to say everything about religion is easy these days, because it isn't. It does say that the secular prophets who predicted us that we would, the human race was just going to evolve past the need for God, religion was sort of a thing of the past, is really mistaken. Talk about being on the wrong side of history. What's really been on the wrong side of history is the secular West. The secular West that said you think you can build a nation, build culture without a belief in God, with just a belief in humanism, and then you see it collapse as it always has. And by the way, we have repeated this experiment about a thousand times of human history. But I, I wish we could all see the world as it is and what's really happening in this world because it's, it's the West and Europe that's really out of step. We're the ones who are on the wrong side of history here as the human race goes back to its primal roots to say there is a God, I would like to know him, I would want what has he said about himself, and so that's uh, proving true again and again. For all the benefits of science and medicine and technology, I'm, nobody would question that, but as faith systems, as a faith system, science and technology has been a huge failure. Huge. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an idol. It's a different, it's taught people in the West to say, I'll just believe in technology. And so the, the outcomes have been horrendous. Um, millions of unwanted children aborted and discarded. Millions. Um, young children encourage at very early age to decide what gender they are, to decide what gender they are, and then to celebrate that. I mean, the confusion, it just, it, it's exponentially growing. Waves of sexual harassment, assault, pornography, the fences that religion put up to protect women and children torn down. And then we're all surprised when there's this wave of sexual harassment and danger for women because the, the secular mind does not cannot do that. They cannot build human morality without a concept of God in it. Okay? Uh, the very concept of authority eroded at home, in school, in the church, in the nation, to where we've almost become ungovernable because only religion can teach you authority. Somebody higher than you, that you are safe underneath him. Uh, all, all this is to say, you are part of a large wave, if you are here tonight, and part of a church like that, who begins to say, tell me again what this says. I've grown up with it, I've learned all those Bible stories, but tell me again what this remarkable book has been saying 
to the world for all these generations. It, it's, by the way, just the, the interest in Bible studies, Terry, interest in Bible studies has just grown exponentially in the, even in the secular West because people want to know. I, I, w- tell me what it says. Let me read it for myself. And so your interest in the Bible study is part of a worldwide movement. Last week we began a study we called Eight Story Bible. Eight stories, if you'll get them in your mind, they provide the, the meta-narrative for the, the Scripture as a whole. They provide the framework by which you can always kind of know where you are in, in, in the Scripture and what's developing. Um, as I said in my prayer, I, I feel privileged. If two people had come tonight, or 202, I, I feel so privileged to, to take this book and tell you again, here's kind of how this goes. Here's what the, how these stories unfold. As a review, last week we started with the first story the, called Beginnings. Genesis 1 through 11 is where you find it. I encourage you to go home and just flip through those 11 chapters. Just kind of get a perspective of where you all are. God, intelligent, good, and wise, creates man in his image. Sin comes, man rebels against God's moral law and authority. Follow that. This created man, higher than all the animals, place it, a unique place in creation, rebels up against his creator, both his law and his authority, and then judgment comes. The reaction, our, our God, whatever you want to say, is not intolerant in terms of no reaction. That the sin of the human race, you can say, look this way, the sin of the human race is going to raise a reaction from him. He's not passive, he's not distant, he's not uninvolved. The sin that's still here is going to make him react. And so that's all. That's what Beginnings tells us. Um, uh, Story number two, then. God chooses a people and a place. In a decision that no one really anticipated, God decides to reveal himself in a nation, one of the smallest nations, not one of the larger, not a power, a, a, a small nation, and actually in a man who illustrates the principle of faith who becomes the nation, the story of Abraham. Um, God decides, I'm going to write into the human story uh, my own character. I'm going to reveal myself through this nation, its traditions and its its experiences. Um, Abram and his family, uh, the key ideas, the call of God, the power of faith, the patience of God to work in time through history. By the way, this is still review. That's what the Bible means when it says salvation is of the Jews. A Jesus quote. Salvation is not something that can be discovered or achieved, everybody. It is the very grace of God at work. His great work in the world is to save men who had rebelled against him. Whenever you see, great are your works, O God. It's usually referring to salvation. That's, that's his great work, to save humans and give them 
eternal life again. But that salvation is not something that we came up with. He revealed it. He, it's a narrow little door. It's a specific uh, door. God-given revealed ideas. And the fact that he chose to do it through the Jewish nation is um, not debatable. At least from a Christian perspective. Now you can argue that you wouldn't have done it that way. You can say, well, I don't know why he would have done that. But you cannot argue that that's what's being said. The great creator God, a world in rebellion. He loves us in our rebellion and he decides to reveal himself through a nation. Now watch this. It's one of my favorite things about the Bible. Like a symphony conductor... He begins, an artist, he begins to introduce themes that he will, you'll later see in Jesus. Thousands of years, two thousands of years later. He, he, if you've seen a, you know, a symphony, you'll hear this little melody and it just once. And then later on there'll be a whole movement that that melody is built out and you see the beauty of the whole thing. That's exactly how God does. So you, tonight you'll see him talk about salvation he'll talk about the blood covering us in the innocent lamb this is a an art, the only way i can say it's artistic god he's just beautifully artistic uh, knowing in from the beginning what he was going to do how he was going to do it in this broken human race and so this book is is that story okay story number three let's go to this map and you can see it above me it's called exodus Obviously, the word exodus is um, the same word exit. Uh, so whenever we start talking about the, I'm not talking just about the book exodus, but also the whole story. It has is taken from the same root as exit, the people leaving the nation of Egypt. After years, by the plan of God, they are over here in in the Holy Land or Canaan, that's where Abraham finally settles in, in story two. They end up in Egypt. At that time, one of the world's great superpowers. It's a culture of idolatry. They have many gods, which is, by the way, the preference of human, the human soul. If you just leave him to himself, he's going to come up with many gods because he doesn't owe very much to any of them. He, they'll all be kind of small. They'll all be small, and they'll all be they'll uh, they'll be images of himself. He will make gods in his own image. So Egypt had done that. Um, brilliant nation, however, brilliant in architecture, brilliant in engineering, one of the most highly developed civilizations the world has ever known. So in Egypt, the people of God, this family. Uh, ends up being in slavery and persecuted. It's, uh, it's the world's, it's a picture of the world's native animosity towards spiritual things. The world, just as God has reacted to sin, the world reacts to holiness. The world reacts to it. And so it's this native animosity that's showing up in their persecution. So this story is largely, you've guessed it, about Moses. Um, if you want a summary, just stop here. Some story one is about God uh, and Adam. Uh, Noah, perhaps, if you want to. 
Story number two is about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 brothers, and Joseph, that whole family. Uh, story number three, then, is about Moses and Joshua. So if you want to just name it for its people. He's born in slavery, raised through a providential work of God in Pharaoh's house as an adopted son. Early in his adult life, he murders a man, gets in trouble with the law, and flees to Kadesh Barnea, this wilderness area that's sort of between the Holy Land and Egypt. Uh, one day, in personal despair, he encounters God. How? Help me with the story. Burning bush. Burning bush. One of the, one of the huge moments of the scripture. Burning bush. Theologically and psychologically compelling to Moses because the burning bush is not destroyed. It's in the heat of adversity. Uh, Moses is identifying with this bush. He feels like he has ruined his life. He feels like he's wasted all of his life. And yet this bush is saying, no, if God's in it, life doesn't destroy you. There's something eternally strong. And, and Moses really identifies with that you can't be ruined you can't nobody can take your life not if it's god's in it nobody can take god's life and and by the way in a sense he begins to identify not only with himself with this bush but israel that israel hasn't been destroyed either even in persecution he's they've not been destroyed so on the call of god he returns to egypt calls the people back into abrahamic trust and journey he says I want you to trust Jehovah God. I want you to look up and let him lead you in this journey. Um, you know these stories. The last plague nearly destroys Egypt. The, the death of the firstborn. Itself an artistic hint. of The death of God's firstborn. Really, really. Now, I, I, I'm not telling you I think any of those people knew that. I don't think they knew that. I think they just were riding it. It came to them. But God knew it. God knew what was being pictured here. The blood over the door. Huddle with your family under a door and write, put the blood of an innocent over it. The angel of judgments will pass over it and you'll be spared. The deliverance out of Egypt. They, they flee. They move across the Red Sea and then into this wandering area in what is now Saudi Arabia or the wilderness of Paran. Okay. In that time, they are providentially provided for. Uh, God gives them the law at Sinai. And by the way, all of these, Paul will later say, go read 1 Corinthians tonight. Well, I'm always going to give you a little bit of an assignment. Go read 1 Corinthians and let, let Paul say, everybody, all that was happening for you. It was for us that God was writing these patterns and these metaphors and these analogies into their experience so none of those experiences just happened by chance they were drawn by an artistic god because he was revealing what salvation was going to eventually look like and we would all see it later um these experiences weren't just for them uh, god was writing this more permanent story so where is that story found Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Those books. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Who are the people? Moses and Joshua. And what is being taught now? 
in story number three of the scripture. Well, it introduces the idea of salvation or rescue that that model is going to hold for all of us. That God's going to save you and then lead you out. Do you hear the, the comparisons to your own experience in Christ? That you were slaves to sin. The, what, the, the deeper lesson of allowing them to be slaves in Egypt is he's wanting to say how enslaved we all are to sin, to our, our lower nature. And that God has to rescue you, introduce you to himself, and then he will lead you out, provide for you. All of this is written, written for us. The beauty of God's law, Ten Commandments, the centrality of worship. While they're out here, he gives them a tabernacle. And it's just, golly, you, just, you can't study this so long that it gets old. He says, in that, the holy God will come and I'll dwell with you. And so you'll build your camp around it. I'll be at the center of the camp. and w You'll identify as people with whom God lives. And by the way, when we get to Revelation, the end, remember how it all says it ends? I'll be with you again. You'll be with me. We'll all be back together. We'll, your sin, uh, Bruce was teaching the other day in men's Bible study, he said, the sad thing about life as it is right now is all your relationships are basically built off your insecurities. There's almost no relationship you have, no matter who you, is, who you love, that isn't really affected by your insecurities. Now, someday remove that, and it's just really you, and you live in the presence of God, and you feel safe, you feel loved, you don't feel tugged in another direction. What will our relationships be like that? Well, that's how this whole story ends. So in story three, God begins to give them a hint of what that feels like. God himself begins to live in the midst of them in worship. They come to worship him. So, Okay, stop there. Anybody have questions or comments? Anybody just want to say, thank God for that story? Uh, or something that you learned or you liked? Anybody? Go. Yes, right here. That's right, that's right. Causing all things to work for together for good. He is this providentially good God using even those awful experiences to teach them. That's right. That's right, exactly right. Anybody else want to say thank God for this story? Anybody want to tell me how you're going to tell your grandchildren this story? What do you tell them? You think on that one, you think on that one. Story number four. Um, the story number four is called Judges, Prophets, and Kings. And the capitals under prophets indicates the large role the prophets will play in this story and the next one. Look this way, everybody. You really cannot over emphasize the role of the prophets in the scripture they are absolutely huge jesus 
I mean, he, his summary for the whole Old Testament, you know what he calls it? The Law and the Prophets. I mean, 30 of the Old Testament books out of 39 are prophetic books. These men were giants. They were giants. In often a very secular age, they would hear God, Nabi, that's the Hebrew word. Nabi means to, 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 to hear or speak for God. Or seers, Chosen, that means to, to see invisible stuff and say it. So these are spiritual men in a secular world. And increasingly secular. And they would say their, their routine word was, Thus saith the Lord. They, and I'm telling you, Jesus loved the prophets. He quoted them all the time. I'm going to really get myself in trouble here. Um, you can't be a New Testament Christian if you don't understand the prophets. You, you cannot. Because they, the later the, the spirit of a testament, the, the spirit of prophecy is testimony now, says the New Testament. The, that same boldness to talk about Jesus in a world that doesn't believe in him anymore. Jeremiah, we'll get to Jeremiah, how mistreated he is and misunderstood and beat up and arrested. That the prophets were these men that as things begin in its cyclical nature to move back towards sin, they said That's, that is not true. And so they spoke for him. So this chapter, chapter number four, is the judges and prophets and king. Let's, let's get there. Uh, once they get to Canaan, okay, remember, they, Moses leads them up here. Um, God says, you cannot take them in yourself. Uh, Joshua will. They move over here to the, to the eastern side of the Jordan and from there move into the promised land. So the, uh, it's, this story is once they get in, Joshua brings them in in the book. In, uh, they, the nation begins to operate on sort of a loose tribal confederacy. Uh, what happens is all the, rather than have a centralized government, um, like, like we would understand or we would know, all the tribal chieftains and heads just kind of represented the whole, and the whole nation was expected to listen to God. The word in, in democracy is pray, everybody. Demos is people in Greek, and kratia is power. So when we say democracy, we're really saying the people have power. The people have the power. But this was designed to be a theocracy. Uh, God, theos, kratia. So it was designed that all these tribes seeking God together would just kind of move um, in conformity with his will. Um, we talk as Americans about separation of church and state. It's a uniquely American twist. Um, but you must never, ever think about the separation of God from government. That's just not true at all. Um, 
the scripture imagines that even ruling authorities do so under the su- submission to God, in, uh, subordination to God and his law. And when that doesn't happen, when human rulers set themselves, ap- set themselves against God's government, then chaos happens every time. And so um, in, a, in a series of cyclical failures, God makes clear that he is not going to bless a nation that is ruled by self. Sound familiar to anybody? In a series of cyclical failures, God makes clear, I will not bless a nation that's ruled by self. And when they would get in trouble, and they did, very weak, very uh, subject to outside uh, aggression, uh, they were the Philistines, the, you know, the Midianites, they were all... They were just, it was an awful chapter. But they'd cry out to God. They had enough memory to cry out to God, and he would raise up um, a person that the Scripture calls a judge. Now, what, he, what they mean by that is a sort of a semi-military religious figure that is speaking the judgment of God on this whole scene. He, judgment always has to do with God's perspective, you know, what's right and wrong. And so the judge is representing right back into this, and so would lead them into victory. And so you remember the stories of Gideon and Samson and Deborah and, you know, all the judges. And then remember, after they get free again, sort of satisfied and settled, then they drift back into sin, and then the cycle would repeat. The Judges is a pretty depressing book to read. In the... At the end of that judge's period, a man emerges who is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Anybody want to guess? Samuel. Just a giant. Just absolutely a giant. He's uh, he born, born with a, such spiritual experiences. A little boy uh, wakes up, God calling him. Eli says, go go say, I'll do what you're saying. I want to hear from you. Just remarkable, remarkable man. What's that? From the very beginning. From the very beginning. In, but he's being born. Don't despair, everybody, if you're born right now in America. He's been born in a very weakened, very secular, very backslidden nation. You know this. What everybody else does doesn't have to have any impact on you. If you're hungry for God, go find God. Go on. Pay all the prices. Pay all the costs. Don't look for anybody to support you. And that's what Samuel essentially has. He has to go ahead and seek out this remarkable relationship with God that for the rest of his life, the whole nation depends on him deeply. Um, as I said, Nabi means speaker, Chazin means seer. He sees the spiritual world and talks about it. He sees that the whole world always operates on a parallel track uh, between material that you see and the invisible that you don't see, and that the invisible world is the larger one and the better one and the longer one. And he sees that world and can talk about it. Um,
As Samuel speaks, the people began to follow again the efficacy of God's word. Uh, for people to hear the word is to find power in correction. Whenever they would hear what God was saying and move back toward it, he would bless them. Um, as I said to you, the prophets were heroes of Jesus. And so uh, at the end of the judges period, I mean, at the end of the first part of this fourth story, the people are still very backslidden, very... Um, not non-spiritual in their minds. They really aren't spiritual people, even still. And they want a king because everybody else has a king. Now, watch what's going on here. They are saying the reason we've been defeated these last 150 years is because everybody had a king and we didn't. No. The reason you've been defeated is because you drifted from God. But see, that's not how lost men think. The reason we have been defeated is because we didn't have a king. We need a king because everybody else has, has one. Uh, even though it's a concession, it's one that God saw coming. And back in Deuteronomy, interesting words. Remember, I mean, that's back in story number three, Deuteronomy. Um, God tells Moses, write this down, that when you do get a king, finally, make sure he writes a copy of the law every year. He, he takes that like a... Anybody here journal? You, you journal your thoughts? Anybody? I, if you go back to my whole, since I was 17, part of my journaling experience has just been to write scripture. I just find a passage and I write it and then I write it again and then I write it again because it's that um, I see it, I feel it, I hear it. And so he said, when you get a king, make, make sure he writes a copy of the law every year so he knows what I expect of the human race. So, um, where is this story found? Story number four, Judges, Prophets, Kings. Well, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, 1st Kings, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. Who's involved in that story? Well, the judges, all the judges, Samuel. And then, remember that in, because they wanted a king, then Samuel anoints Saul, and that's a train wreck. And then anoints David, and then David chooses out of all of his sons Solomon. So we'll just put those three ki kingdoms together, Saul, David, Solomon, because it's all part of one story, and that's in, in story number four. What does it teach? The failure of the secular state and the need for the word of God. Um, Hal probably can say amen to this. You guys, I... I I really am on my knees before I preach because I know you can preach for, for the people to like it. And they all leave and they say that was a good sermon. But that's not the, what the goal is, is that they hear the Spirit of God. He takes up the sword and cuts. He does surgery on their hearts. He cuts. And he, he, he himself uses that word to create life in people. That's what, how our nation was built. Please, don't tell me our nation was built by all these secular innovations. Our, our nation was built because pulpits just like this one were preaching the word of God and people heard it. They heard it and they responded and they had life and they pushed out into the secular environment and expressed and spent that life. And so 
that's our goal. That, that's our goal with this thing. Okay, questions or comments on story number four? Anybody? Yes, sir. I'm still struggling. Youth camp. Bruce brings up Leviticus here, but I, I love Leviticus because you feel the collision in the heart of God of his unbending justice. Things are right and wrong, and you get killed because you did them. It's just this judgment book. And then there's this hint of this blood sacrifice and the forgiveness. So you see this tension. How can and Paul will later say it? How can he be just and forgive you guys? How can he let anybody be saved to and still be just? He, he has said, everybody, was the, the sin that destroyed the world, from our perspective, it seemed really small, right? It was a little an apple. But God had so set that up to say, I'm going to give you everything you need and then just make this one prohibition and she couldn't even do that one. She just couldn't do it because the tendency of the human heart is to set its own mind and say, this looked good to me. It looked good for food. It looked good. For, it was pleasurable. I will do it. And so Leviticus is that picture of this. You have to say holy God. So fiercely angry at sin, you can't even describe how angry he is at what we have done to this world and to our lives. Just holy. And yet, then it's compassionate love. It just still wants you. Wants you to have a, a way. It's just, by the way, nobody could write that story. And people always say to me, that's written by a man. And I say, show me the man that could write that. Introduce me to him that could think in such lofty terms and then do it over three centuries that's really the most amazing thing you've ever just this gradually developing story of this loving god who's just as holy he, he has no tolerance for sin everybody that's a lie he has no tolerance for sin and so he's arranged a way to deal with it which is the blood of his innocent son Great. Anybody else want to talk about story four? Story five. <laughs> and a mirror of America right now. 
a mirror. I tell you, everybody, go read Beowulf. And it's, what is it, 800 years old? I don't know how old Beowulf is, but it's relatively young. And honestly, you will not identify with a single character. It will all seem sort of weird, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream, kind of weird stuff. It'll feel Shakespearean to you. It'll feel weird. You read this stuff, and you think, my stars, that's my story. That's exactly me. Because it's just such a different book. It's just written by the Spirit of God, written by your Creator who knows you. Uh, honestly, we could be here all night. Okay, go. Uh, story five um, is exile and return. Solomon's period is a time of great prosperity for, for um, Israel. A unified nation, uh, he has prayed for the wisdom from God, um, and God has given it to him. Uh, likely the econ economy is part of the problem. Uh, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. It's hard for our nation to deal with the kind of wave of prosperity that we've lived with and to stay holy and fearful of God. When you have enough, this invisible transcendent world can fade on you. When you have enough, this transcendent world can fade, and that's what's happened in America, and that's what happened in Solomon's time, is um, they just began to lose track of that. Uh, despite the warnings against idolatry, and the prophets are still operating in this, so the prophets go for chapter story 4 and 5. Um, Solomon allows it in a spirit, spirit of tolerance, of political tolerance. Any of this sound familiar? And spiritual, spiritual tolerance allows idolatry to become at least a competing, competing idea in Israel. Soon after his death, then, the nation is already showing the lack of cohesion that comes from faith. If you do not believe in the same God, if you do not believe in him in the same way, then... You begin to fight each other. Sound familiar? A nation like ours could only live as 50 states with so many races and so many different cultures because there was this consensus in the, in the middle of it. Of these churches and these people of faith were keeping the glue. But you lose that and you lose the cohesion. And so what happens is... Solomon dies, and his son is foolish and doesn't rule well, and so the nation splits right there. Um, the south becomes known as Judah. The north becomes known as Israel. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, then, you track two separate nations. So Israel is the north, uh, Judah in the south. Um, with almost unbelievable arrogance, the northern kingdom puts up two idols, one uh, at Beersheba and one at Dan, south and north, because they were afraid that the pull of Jerusalem and the temple and the history of that place would have too much effect on their people and would divide their loyalties up against this nation. So they put idols here to essentially institutionalized idolatry in the north and the prophets went crazy 
they went crazy. They said, are you kidding me? Ten of the twelve tribes and you're institutionalizing idolatry for a political purpose? And um, it, it was just remarkable. And so the northern kingdom began to slide so fast, so fast. Just it's a, it's a very, very sad story. In 722, Assyria, which is that land that Jonah said he wasn't going to go preach at, and it was largely because of all this, he felt the pressure. Of, he, he, he wanted to say to God, don't you get it? The Assyrians are eating our sack lunch. The Assyrians are, are ruining and about to ruin our nation. And God says, no, the Assyrians are not. Your unbelief is ruining your nation. And so in 722, the Assyrians come in, conquer this land, Samaria is their capital, take the ten tribes away, intermarry them, and basically just destroy that heritage. The, the northern kingdom is uh, just captured and assimilated and intermarried. Eventually, the south has a similar trajectory. It's just slower. So by 586, it's not Assyria here in the north. It's Babylon over here on the east. I hope you'll go home and read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is sort of a seminal man of this period. The temple sermon in chapter 7. He says to these people, you guys think you're safe because the temple's here. And you think that God would never allow this city to be destroyed because the temple is here. And he says, that is not true. That is not true. The Babylonians will come and they were gonna, they'll take this city apart. And the interesting thing is people resented him because they feel like, felt like he was being unreligious, irreligious. It was because he, remember what, what Jesus felt, uh, fought his culture about? The temple. And he would often quote these same words. He, he would say, you guys put so much emphasis on going to church and being here and feeling safe because you were here. But if that sort of stops the real repentance that's supposed to be happening, this huge revival where you get all the way back to God, all the way back with your hearts. And so uh, Jeremiah will preach the Jerusalem service uh, sermon and will we'll be there when the Babylonians do, in fact, come and um, take them. Um, the exile years then, mostly it's in waves. The, they're captured and their leaders and money go and then they're captured again, and the next layer of leaders go, and then they're finally absolutely destroyed. The Babylonians were not um, amused by all this. And so uh, there's a series of uh, exiles into Babylon. And then 70 years later, and by the way, then Jeremiah is here, Ezekiel is here. Ezekiel is taken. Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, uh, some of the some of the prophets speak from Babylon, and, and so you get this other perspective. Seventy years later, according to prophecy, God moves in a pagan heart, and He says, "Y'all can go home." A, a new political administration comes up and says, "You know, we'd be stronger 
as a Babylonian kingdom if all these nations went home and rebuilt their if they, they built their land, that means so much to them. So they let them all go home. So Nehemiah and Ezra. So that's how you get back to this story. They're taken into exile 70 years and then sent home. And that whole story. Um, you know... Historians are not really clear. The Bible says it was God moved on Cyrus's heart. So you don't really know. There were lots of other factors saying that the Babylonian Empire as a whole is best defended by people who are happy where they are rather than miserable in exile. So there are lots of other factors that may have gone into his thinking. The exile years were hard. Uh, brought a lot of insight Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego Ezekiel, Esther um, 70 years they come back Ezra, Haggai um, so generally that whole story speaks to the holiness of God that he is not kidding he will destroy what lives in rebellion against him, he will and also, in that strange combination of hope, he says, Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. I, plans for a future, give you a future and a hope. So even in his terrible holiness, he has this loyal love for his people, for people who truly are his. And so he says, but I, I know what my plans are for you. And so you have that juxtaposition of those two things. Um, then things go silent. This is the sweetest of all parts. It's as if the heavens just clicked off the prophetic lamp and said, we're done. And so for 400 years, no prophet with any of the energy of the Holy Spirit stands to help Israel think about anything new. And by the way, that's when we get to story number six. That's when John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness and says, thus saith the Lord is the first prophet that we've heard from in 400 years. Just, <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous what this whole story looks like and feels like. So story number five, um, they, they emerge out of their out of exile with the synagogue. That's a good thing that happens. While they're there, they form synagogues, 10 families little churches, and that helps them. They um, emerge with the Pharisees. The Pharisees decide what happened here is we didn't obey God's law, so we're going to come back. When we get back, we're going to obey God's law to the 10th degree. And Jesus, that in itself is sort of a misread. You, you fell apart because you drifted from God. And it's a relationship with God that has to inform and teach you how to read the law. That's when Jesus would say, you read the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but to them that tell you of me, if you do not read the scripture and stand in front of this God, it's not doing you any good. It's just making you a Pharisee, a really informed lost person. It's got to open your heart to you say, oh, oh, this wonderful God. So, um, so review that. Uh, 
where, where is it? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets. Um, major and minor prophets, everybody, has nothing to do with their value. Major means they, their books were longer. Minor means their books were shorter. But all of these guys were giants. Um, next week, then, we'll wrap this up. Story number six is Jesus. Story number seven is Acts and the missions of the church. And story number eight is Revelation and the end of all things. So, Anybody else think that's just remarkable? I just think that's remarkable. Uh, comments or questions? Anything you liked or heard that you had never heard before? Maybe it's like what I said, you've heard it all before. Absolutely. The Old Testament was the scripture Jesus had, and he had no copy of it. He memorized it, thought about it all the time. Huh? <laughs> okay. I'll give you that point. <laughs> uh, anybody else? Right back here, Michael. Uh, Rehoboam is his son, who was the fool. And had an opportunity to rule well and keep the nation unified and he was arrogant and listened to his young advisors and didn't and so then Jeroboam is the guy who starts rebels and takes the ten tribes away so Rehoboam is the son of Solomon okay excuse me He was Persian. The Babylonian thing went through its own shift, and then the Persians came in. Cyrus was Persian. Um, the Assyrians themselves were conquered pretty awfully. They, they took the people, assimilated them in, and then themselves were conquered and just basically put a, a zero on that northern tribes. Yeah. Yeah. Al? I think I think you're right, and I think one of the this is my prediction in the coming revival, 
American churches will go back to much more intentional instruction. We'll go back and we will intentionally teach people certain ways to think, certain categories with which to think. We've largely left that to our seminaries, and I think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake. I think it's part of the discipling process is to shape somebody's mind, how he thinks. Well, you can't, ex- you can't even explain the work of the prophets without the Holy Spirit. They were animated by an invisible, intelligent presence. They were. They spoke from the Lord. The Holy Spirit moved in them. And so, yeah, people who are essentially materialists and they on- only believe in the material world and they deny the invisible, supernatural world are not. Christians, they're not. They, that is not. You cannot reconcile a only material view, because how do you come up with the resurrection? How do you come up with walking on water? How do you come up with any of the stories? You finally have to just read around the Bible so much that it's not the Bible anymore. This book is talking about an invisible world that interacts with this world, knows it, loves it, is frustrated beyond his mind, but he's he's. He's aware of us tonight. Right here. Yeah. Well, everybody, as the Holy Spirit sweeps through this church, you watch, we may begin to say, we're, we're not going to just, it's called student-based learning, which you basically teach and let the student take what he can and, and apply it. It's taken over American education. But there's also that, that rote use of certain standards of thought, categorical thought, you you get children and adults get this in your head memorize this get this there and then you begin to file things up against it does that make sense it's a, just a completely different educational philosophy and uh, you you watch american churches are going to start going what we're doing is not working because you can be in sunny school for a thousand years and not come up with this a thousand years and not see the whole you just can Go get them. Go say to somebody, come worship with me Sunday. Come think these larger thoughts. God bless you. Thanks.